Welcome to JAG Talk, a podcast series featuring Navy JAG community experts. Listen to in-depth discussions about different legal fields and hear insights and lessons learned from practitioners across our enterprise. Chapter 40, Admiralty and Maritime Law. My name is Lieutenant Commander Tom Bright, and for the past year, I've been working as a Navy Judge Advocate at the Office of the Judge Advocate here in Washington, D.C., in the Admiralty and Maritime Law Shop, otherwise known around the fleet uh, and the JAG Corps as Code 11. Code 11's uh, main function within the Judge Advocate Corps is to provide expert guidance in Admiralty and Maritime Law and support to the fleet in the prosecution of Admiralty claims and litigation. I'm here today and joined by Lieutenant Commander J.C. Sylvan, and J.C.'s been an attorney here at Code 11 since 2017. Hey, good afternoon, Tom. How are you? I'm good, J.C. Good to have you here. Let's give uh, our listeners a little bit more information about Code 11 and, and what how we're structured. So Code 11 is ably led by the Admiralty Council of the Navy, uh, right now Captain Albert Jannon, and he brings nearly 30 years of operational and leadership experience to our practice. But we're also very lucky to have as our deputy director, Mr. Chris Spain, a retired Navy commander. He's a proctor of Admiralty, and he's really the Navy's in-house subject matter expert. He's truly Uh, He the man's like a living, breathing Admiralty Law Treatise. And then also on the team is an Admiralty attorney embedded with the Department of Justice's Admiralty Law Division. Uh, In this case, Lieutenant Commander Kyle Freilich. He's been in that seat for the past couple of years. He's just now deployed. And Tom, you're headed over there in the next couple of weeks. That's right, JC. And also rounding out the team is Lieutenant Commander Brad Davis, who's been leading our international efforts on autonomous vessels at the International Maritime Organization over the past two years. And we're going to touch more on that subject in a little bit. And really, we are a high-speed, low-drag operation around here, JC. That's right, Tom. I'd like to jump in, if I can, with a recording, just to illustrate the kind of issues that Code 11 has been working on over the past couple of years. So so this is a publicly available recording from a bridge of a destroyer just before it collided in 2012. I'll leave it there. reporting from the USS Porter uh, collision with a tanker near the Strait of Hormuz back on the 12th of August 2012. Um, the Porter sustained major hull damage above the waterline. It's one of the most significant Admiralty incidents that have occurred over the past 15 years. And just three months later, in uh, three months earlier, actually, May of 2012, the Essex collided with a fleet replenishment oiler while conducting its approach alongside for uh, unwrap. And there's been others too, JC. In uh, February of 2009, the USS Port Royal grounded off the coast of Oahu 
while offloading personnel into a small boat. Yep, and then on uh, the 21st of June 2011, the USS Emory Land alighted with a channel buoy after experiencing a loss of rudder control while headed into Bahrain. January of 2007, uh, 2013, excuse me, we had the USS Guardian grounded on the reef in the Philippines. Yep, and then just not even a, uh, just a year later, a USS Taylor grounded in a harbor while pulling into port in Samson, Turkey. And we had the USS Tortuga in October of 2014 alive with the buoy at the entrance to the Chesapeake Bay while inbound to Anchorage. Yeah, and then, of course, in 2017, these incidents all took a fatal turn when the USS Fitzgerald and USS John S. McCain each collided with commercial ships. 17 sailors lost their lives. So what does the JAG Corps do when an Admiralty incident like one of these occurs? Well, JC, they should call the Admiralty, the Admiralty Division at OJAG. Admiralty Law Division here at Code 11 uh, is one of the smallest and least known divisions in in OJAG, uh, but we're going to change that today. And while most of the judge advocates don't realize they are practicing admiralty law, every command at sea or on the waterfront will experience an admiralty incident at some point in a staff judge advocates tour. Through this podcast, we hope to provide a little exposure to this unique area of law and the Navy's admiralty and maritime law practice. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Maybe just to begin with, let's talk a little bit about maritime law. So maritime law refers to an entire body of law. It deals with the sea, including laws on the use of marine resources, ocean commerce, and navigation. This, of course, includes the law of the sea and naval operations. Admiralty law is, is both narrower and broader than maritime law. It's, it's narrower since it really only covers the private law of navigation and shipping, which includes water-borne torts. But it's also broader since it includes navigable rivers and lakes. To make it simple, I'll just refer to admiralty and maritime law for this podcast as admiralty law. Right. And Admiralty Law is one of the oldest forms of law, going back all the way to 1800 BC. Doesn't mean that it's no longer relevant and doesn't mean that it hasn't changed. Uh, it continues to evolve along with the technology uh, and the, that impacts the use of the seas. There are concepts that apply equally to ancient Egyptian reed rafts and to fully autonomous cargo ships that we have today. Yeah, but how does it work for the Navy, Tom? I mean, how are our Navy ships treated any differently? There are some differences. Uh, the Navy practice of admiralty law is similar to private practice. Generally, we don't have cargo issues, uh, but we deal with death, personal injury. We deal with property damage claims revol- resulting from our operations at sea. It, this can involve all kinds of incidents. We can, we're talking about collisions, elisions, wake damage, groundings, ordnance damage. could be a counter-piracy operation, drug and weapons interdictions, oil spills, shipyard worker and visitor injuries, and fishing gear damage. Yeah, and I think something for our, some of our listeners to appreciate too is we're not just talking about our larger ships, the ones that we were talking about earlier, uh, the USSs, but claims also arise when um, we operate our MSE vessels or our MWR vessels, yard craft, security boats, uh, even remotely operated craft, uh, includes embarked aircraft, which a lot of people m- might not appreciate, and pretty much any other activity in any navigable waters can result in an admiralty claim. Of course. Uh, and there are some uniquely federal requirements regarding jurisdiction, waiver of sovereign immunity, liens, contracting, salvage and seamen injuries. But for the most part, the Navy is subject to general maritime law, including the requirement to comply with the nautical rules of the road, uh, also known as the coal regs, a convention on the international regulations for preventing collisions at sea. If we fail to follow those, it makes it more likely we'll be liable for damage, personal injury, and, and death that we may cause. 
Yeah, as I mentioned before, another aspect of our work are claims um, and claims processing, a little bit like Code 14 um, and Code 15, which is outlined in a Code of Federal Regulations. Basically, we gather information on an incident informally or through an admiralty investigation, and then we applying general maritime law to the facts that we've collected. We determine whether we're likely to win in a U.S. district court if there was litigation. Um, and to either assert if someone damaged our ship or to pay if we damaged somebody else's a claim accordingly. So SECNAV has specific statutory authority to settle claims by or against the Navy. And some of that authority has been delegated down to JAG and the Admiralty Council of the Navy, currently Captain Albert Jannon. JAG can settle claims up to 500000 and Admiralty can settle claims up to $250,000. Cases over SecNav's authority are adjudicated by the Department of Justice, uh, and the Deputy Assistant JAG for Admiralty is also authorized to sign releases on behalf of SecNav to settle these affirmative claims. This administrative claims process is critical to maintaining good relations with our domestic and foreign neighbors, uh, and it allows us to quickly pay meritorious claims without requiring someone to incur the delay and expensive litigation. Yeah, well, since we're such a small office and responsibility for admiralty claims and have responsibility for admiralty claims worldwide, we really do rely heavily on judge advocates in the fleet, uh, both to report admiralty incidents when they occur and also to gather information we need to adjudicate these claims. The JAGMAN provides guidance on investigations we need, Chapter 11, generally describes admiralty litigation investigations. We also use the JAGMAN Chapter 2 uh, investigations, what we all know as a command investigation in some circumstances, which we'll explain. Um, and then we provide guidance and direction to you as you're trying to put together your investigation report. So just to recap for everybody listening, anytime you have a situation where there is injury, death, or damage on the water or rising out of a naval operation that involves non-federal entities, we want the fleet to send us at Code 11 a brief situation report. It doesn't mean a claim or suit has been filed or will be filed. It doesn't mean that there's going to be litigation. Um, but we want to be, you know, take that step and get that preliminary report to start the conversation of what we have to do next and where we have to go. Yeah, I think maybe helpful for the listeners to maybe go over a specific case, sort of to think through the kind of information that we're looking for. Yeah, JC, I'd say generally when we're talking about a maritime incident, um, we're going to be looking for the following. We're going to be looking for a description of the injury of the incident, whether it's an injury, a death, or there's some type of property damage or maybe environmental damage. We want the name, identity of opposing parties or vessels, including nationalities of vessels involved. Uh, we want to know the vessel owner. We want to know government affiliation. Uh, we want to know if the party is a contracted harbor or service provider. We want to know the location, the time, date of the incident a brief description of all damages and injuries. And then, of course, we want to know if the command has taken any post-incident actions uh, and whatever those might be. Yeah, the, the crucial thing here is that we need your help to preserve any evidence that might still be out there. So take photos and make sure you label them too and let us know who took the picture. Preserve any kind of electronic information, voyage data, other navigation information, stuff that could get written over or lost or spoiled, especially if it's potentially relevant to the incident. And uh, believe it or not, we sometimes need you to preserve relative, um, the relevant physical evidence. So for instance, if there's a trip and fall case, we might actually need to uh, secure the, the piece of equipment the person tripped over or if there was a faulty chain or something like that we're going to need to secure that especially if the case goes to litigation and then obviously any kind of essential documents like logs uh, contracts 
any kind of waivers, for instance, if we have an injury on a Tiger cruise, releases of liability, operational orders, all that stuff's important. Yeah, and is there a rush and why the rush? Well, I think we know that ships are mobile. Uh, ships are moving. They're never in the same place for very long. So capturing the damage done in a particular admiralty incident through an immediate marine survey or some other type of um, information gathering tool will prevent unnecessary argument over whether this or a subsequent incident caused the actual alleged damage. Yeah, and that's a really good point. I mean, preserving evidence is critical is because if we don't have it, we, so we might lose an important aspect of our case if we don't have the, the evidence that we need in order to make a point about something, whether it's a log file or or, or voyage data or something like that. It's, it's really important that we get that. Much of the work will be done by an investigating officer, but in some cases, we, we really shouldn't wait until the investigation is initiated. Sometimes the best and only evidence may be from a sailor who takes a picture with their phone. You want to be able to grab that before that picture gets deleted. Or securing a deck log before anyone else writes in it again. Or, as I said, securing physical evidence like a broke, broken safety railing or the like. But maybe it'd be easier just to talk about this using like an example of a case. Like, Tom, one of your first cases when you first reported to Code 11 was a strange one, right? One that wouldn't even seem to be Admiralty Tansen since it involved a helicopter towing a minesweeper sled. That's right. Uh, so what's interesting about this case, it illustrates things that come up in Admiralty Law uh, and why our listeners and our, our JAGs out there could have an important role in the investigation process. So this case involved an MH-53 Sea Stallion helicopter conducting minesweeper training in 2017 near Willoughby Bay uh, in Norfolk, Virginia. And this, this helicopter is flying at 75 feet above the water, and it's pulling a sled, a heavy sled, about 200 yards behind it through the water that we use for minesweeping operations. And they were doing training that day out in the water. So upon completion of their training exercise, our 53s are turning to base, pulling the sled, and they encounter a sailboat. The sailboat got too close to our prop wash uh, and encountered high speed, basically hurricane force winds pushing down on it, uh, which uh, the crew didn't realize at the time, but when those forces hit the boat, the sailboat below, it swung the boom around, the boom came, struck a civilian, uh, the civilian suffered a personal injury. So the civilian filed a claim for $250,000 against the United States Navy a few months later. When we received the claim, we notified the squadron, and then we asked them to do an admiralty letter investigation. And we took that investigation and ultimately decided to deny the claim. Hey, Tom, for our listeners who may not know, what is an admiralty letter report investigation? It's a good good point, JC, we should touch on. Um, so looking back at this helicopter case, um, we decided to do the ALR, the admiralty letter report, uh, and we do we do these for admiralty incidents when we anticipate that we're going to be sued or or get a claim against Navy um, in the foreseeable future. The report is conducted under the supervision of one of the Code 11 attorneys, making it attorney work product. This allows the Navy to assess its liability in a particular incident. The information is privileged in the report and protected from a lease under the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, and just of note, when we do these ALRs, Code 11 is the FOIA uh, release authority. Yeah, but there is in certain other types of cases too, and I've had about a dozen of these, we may actually advise the investigating officer or the SGA to do a typical Chapter 2 command investigation rather than an admiralty letter report. Um, and this, this is the command investigation probably most of our listeners have either had participated in or reviewed at some point in their career. 
we conduct these when we might need to actually share information that we don't want it necessarily to be held privileged. We want to share it with another party in a collision when, like, when we believe that the other party has damaged one of our vessels, which sometimes happens. So contractors who are damaged our vessel, for example, they may also want to see this information before they agree to pay a claim. And also to support contracting officers if they want to do an off- offset on the, the Contracts Dispute Act, we'll do a command investigation so that they can share that with the contractor. Sanitized for any kind of uh, national defense information or PII, of course, but it gives them the five whiskeys on what happened in a particular incident and allows them to make the case about whether or not we're entitled to compensation on a claim. So we give a copy of that to the contracting officer, which includes our explanation of why, as a matter of admiralty law, we think the other partly, the party is at least partly at fault. Right. And there's also a third kind of investigation uh, that sometimes we use called the dual purpose investigation or the DPI. And we do these whenever we think the investigation is going to be used for multiple reasons. So if we know there's a good chance of a lawsuit, uh, but we also maybe have some misconduct in a court martial down the road uh, or some other collateral use that we might want to use this investigation for, we recommend a DPI. All right, DPIs are attorney work product, so they're still protected as long as their disse- dissemination is limited. But unlike the ALR, uh, which we never would use or recommend for use for disciplinary administrative action reasons, uh, the DPI may be used for accountability actions, right? So the, we're using the DPI because we're looking towards some other, some other use. The bottom line, if you anticipate your boss or your command um, advi- and you're the one they want to use a report to take a sailor mast or for some other administrative use, the DPI is the right way to go uh, and not the ALR. Right. Well, so in your helicopter case, we did that privileged ALR because we realized probably we were at least potentially liable, right? And there was no damage to the helicopter, no damage to the sled. It was only the personal injuries. So there was really no reason we were going to be sharing our report or wanting to do a command investigation in that instance. And there was no real sense of misconduct. I don't think anybody on the helo realized what had happened. And so we did that privileged ALR, you know, ultimately wound up denying the claim based on the evidence that we collected and we had from the claimant. But then the claimant sued, right? That's right. After about two years from the initial incident, the claimant filed suit in the Eastern District Court of Virginia. So the Department of Justice appointed two attorneys to handle the case, Code 11 assigned agency counsel, and then using the ALR, which we initiated you know, two years previous, as our background, we were able to go look at the facts of the incident, which wasn't fresh anymore, obviously. We identified the important witnesses, and we had a great starting point for discovery. And all we did, uh, using that ALR as a jumping point, we did about a dozen interviews of witnesses. We toured the squadron facilities. We combed through their instructions. uh, And eventually, as the case progressed, we got to a state of mediation. Uh, Mediation went back and forth for about six hours with a magistrate judge and Department of Justice, myself, and uh, the plaintiff's attorney. Uh, And we eventually settled the case for a dollar amount that both parties thought was reasonable, uh, but was well below the initial claim amount. It was a good good spot for the Navy, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of pretty well illustrates how Code 11 counsel are involved in the case from the very, very beginning to the end, uh, working through that ALR, uh, processing the claim, working and supporting the court filings, helping with discovery, uh, conducting witness interviews, doing the document production, even depositions, and then, as Tom said, even participating in the mediation and settlement, um, or potentially, if a case goes to trial, trial. 
It also highlights the importance of, as agency counsel, protecting evidence and working side by side with DOJ attorneys. And look, the other thing to the, this highlights an important point about coordinating, coordinating well with other agencies like the Department of Justice. The Code 11 billets are, are often involved in interagency work. It's a key part of what we do. For example, like when I reported to Code 11 in June of 2017, actually on the day of the collision between the Fitzgerald and the Crystal, uh, which happened off the coast of Japan, it was, it was the worst collision the Navy had suffered in decades. And then just two months later, it happened again, this time when the McCain collided with the oil tanker, uh, the Alnick in the Singapore Strait in August of 2017. So these collisions, the Fitzgerald Crystal Collision and the McCain Alnick Collision, they presented unique challenges regarding investigations, all the things that we've been talking about, but also our interaction with U.S. and foreign investigative bodies, the Japanese, the Singaporeans, um, the investigators from the Philippines and Liberia. We're balancing civil litigation and personal accountability actions, coordinating with the Gold Star families of those who had lost sailors during the collisions, coordination on public statements, interpretation of international and foreign domestic law, yeah, application of privilege, control national uh, defense information, and then supporting Department of Justice as well throughout it all. You know, while any complex admiralty investigation giving rise like this to international legal and intense domestic scrutiny presents significant challenges. I tell you, running two such investigations simultaneously was unprecedented for Code 11. It was truly an all-hands-deck effort for well over a couple of years. Yeah, it sounds like it. Now, you had the opportunity uh, to go to Singapore for the McCain case, right? And what was uh, the focus of your efforts when you got to Singapore? Well, you know, from the final from the first hours after that collision, there was a big emphasis on making a detailed technical record of what happened for obvious reasons, while at the same time ensuring transparency both with the American public and Congress. Um, but we also had a countervailing duty to protect national defense information. I mean, both the McCain and Fitzgerald are ballistic missile defense key um, aspects of this. So the information that we were going to be collected was probably going to either be classified or controlled. But establishing trust was the key priority. And um, most importantly, the investigative method that we used to, to get to the bottom of what had happened and create a detailed account of both collisions we were pulling from a host of data. I mean, interviews, expert analysis. And you know, these initial findings that we came up with, they've held up remarkably well over the past few years. Even almost almost now three years of further inquiry by, by both the Navy, but also private law firms involved in litigation, Department of Justice attorneys, um, the Coast Guard, the National Transportation Safety Board. We st- a lot of what we were able to determine right there from the get-go doing that admiralty investigation is stuff that we still are using today. It, actually, a lot of these findings were published in October of 2017. Um, we published, the CNO published its assessment of our Navy actions preceding the collisions between McCain and Alnick and Fitzgerald and Crystal. The report is spe- specifically like inward-focused, describing the shortcomings of our protocols, our manning issues, or even our ship handling that co- contributed to the collision. Uh, and I encourage the people to read those. That's online on the, on the Navy uh, public affairs portal. 
The Navy also conducted a top-down comprehensive review of the incident and the other incidents we're describing at the top of this podcast and made specific recommendations for changes that we're now imp- implementing based on our lessons learned from the collision. Sounds like there's a lot going on. Um, and I heard you mentioned some other a- agencies like the Coast Guard, like the NTSB. Um, can you highlight that a little bit? Who are you yeah, working no, that's with? That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, for folks who don't understand, especially if you haven't had the opportunity to do interagency work, for, for both collisions, Co-11 worked in parallel with both the U.S. Coast Guard and the National Transportation Safety Board. So the purpose of the U.S. Coast Guard, they call it a marine casualty investigation, they're making factual findings aimed really at understanding how a marine casualty occurred and most importantly, how future casualties can be prevented. The NTSB, for its part, its investigations are also fact-finding procedures, but they also make recommendations, um, and they're conducted really for the purposes of, of uh, safety. It's, it's in what things can be done as an organization to improve the safety of our operations. So we've been working closely with NTSB over the past two years. Uh, they published their report on McCain last summer. That's also online. I recommend people to take a look at that. And I, I think the Fitzgerald report is going to come out here in another month or so. So you've also uh, been doing a little bit of traveling. Yeah, about uh, travel for these cases. Up and forth uh, to New York, right, to support the Department of Justice in the McCain case. Can you uh, describe a little bit of that for us? Yeah, and it's probably interesting for folks, um, anyone interested in litigation. There's been litigation in this case, which in it's taken some pretty unexpected turns. So in February of 2018, the company called Energetic Tank, the owner of Alnick, the ship that collided with McCain, they filed a complaint in the United States District Court in the Southern District of New York, and they were looking for exoneration from or limitation of their liability for their role in the collision. In, in Admiralty, a limitation suit becomes really the only place in which claims for death, personal injury, or property damage against the tortfeasor, in this case the Alnick, would be resolved. So anyone seeking to make a claim against Alnick or Energetic Tank, including the United States for that matter, the injured sailors, uh, the families of the injured or deceased, they all had to file a claim with the court by April of 2018. So at the end of the day, there are 57 claimants with claims totaling more than $170 million. Uh, U.S. filed in that suit as well uh, by the Department of Justice. Our property claim right now it exceeds, I think, $300 million. And there's going to be a trial uh, sometime this fall up in New York in 2020. There's some big numbers you're talking about. Um, so that's obviously USS McCain-related litigation. But we also have the Fitzgerald. Can you tell us what's going on with the Fitzgerald collision case? Oh, yeah. Interesting con- con- uh, point to contrast here. Because in the case of the Fitzgerald, the litigation really has taken a different path. And it's really a, a Lieutenant Commander Kyle Freilich had the lead on that and did a remarkable job. Um, what I can tell you, though I wasn't as directly involved, but in September of 2018, uh, Japanese attorneys representing the corporations that owned and operated Crystal, that's the ship that collided with Fitzgerald, they agreed to settle the U.S. property damage claim for just about $26 million, which is the maximum under uh, controlling Japanese law and international law. It's also the largest affirmative claim in Navy JAG history. Um But the U.S. settlement did not preclude Fitzgerald sailors or Gold Star families from pursuing personal injury and death claims against Crystal Interests. All seven of those families and the injured sailors, they filed separate suits against the Crystal Charter, a company called Nippon Yusan Kabushiki Kashai, or NYK, in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Louisiana. 
That defendant, NYK, is a multi-billion dollar Japanese shipping company with a massive presence in the U.S. Uh, so the complaints are seeking, I think, more than $287 million in damages. The court dismissed the case uh, for lack of jurisdiction, but that decision is now up on appeal with a Fifth Circuit. It's pretty interesting stuff, JC. Yeah, I mean, while the destroyer collisions did, they consumed a lot of our efforts. And like I said, it was an all-hands-on-deck effort here, just not within Code 11, but across the JAG Corps over the past couple of years. We've also been doing other things, trying to work proactively to figure out ways to help the fleet. Yeah, particularly true uh, when we're talking about tugs and foreign ports. Uh, and part of our claims practice that involves asserting affirmative claims against other parties when they're responsible for damage to Navy vessels or property. And historically, many of these affirmative claims have been against entities with whom the Navy has a contractual relationship, such as husbanding service providers or HSPs, tugs, shipyards, and, and entities like that. Yeah, that's right, Tom. And due to their international nature, it can be really hard to assert U.S federal court jurisdiction over these parties. And this limits our ability to recover uh, for damages, even in otherwise strong cases, if we actually have good evidence that uh, one of these tugs damaged our ships. So so what Code 11 does is it works with other stakeholders to identify ways that we can bring these tort feasors, the, the tug companies, so, so they can be ha- held accountable within the terms of their contract with the Navy. That's right. And, and we've been working with the Navy Supply Systems Command, or NAVSUP, and its regional fleet logistics. Logistical Centers, FLCs, to improve the tools available to contracting officers to hold these tugs and HSPs accountable for damages done to our Navy vessels and property. Right? And we've also helped to increase the ability of the fleet to recoup these damages through that, those contract provisions. And generally, you know, this will be through withholding of a payment uh, from, uh, from the contract or taking an offset in the amount of the damages. So, yeah, and just over the last 18 months, we've seen contracting officers use this clause and specifically to reduce the amount of de- payment that the H- to to that we make to the HSPs. So when their actions or if they're even their subcontractors result in damage to our vessels or property. So right now, as of this podcast, that language will also be included in a global HSP contract that is currently under development. We're looking forward to continuing to be a good tool available to contracting officers all around the world. That's right. Now, is there anything that SJAs and commands can do to help us get some of this money back? Yeah, that's a real good question, Tom, and it illustrates a really important point. So even with these improved legal tools uh, and contracting tools, contracting officers can only take action when informed of the damage incidents and in a timely manner and with appropriate supporting information, right? So that's important that they know that something actually happened. So with NAVSUP and uh, stakeholders in the PAC fleet, we put together a port visit checklist that we can use to encourage the COs and SEPOs to easily report these incidents um, up the chain. Yeah, and overall, we hope that approved accountability will result in better provisions of services to our vessels, fewer damage incidents, uh, and improve for improved fleet readiness. Yeah, absolutely. And so beyond processing amortization claims and supporting Aberley's litigation, one of Code 11's significant projects has been USVs, or unmanned service vehicles. And uh, our main... 
attorney that's been working that is Lieutenant Commander Brad, Brad Davis, um, and he's really a subject matter expert on the question of what a USV is, uh, and he's represented the United States at international conferences on the future of USVs. Yeah, legal questions about the employment of autonomous vessels or vehicles in combat often attract the most attention. That's the real topic that people have been talking about lately. But before we can even answer that question of how a, a autonomous vehicle can be employed in combat or another role, we first have to address the question of how we even lawfully and safely get it there in position to to do so, uh, get into the fight, Uh, and whether our use of an autonomous vehicle is accepted by other states that share the ocean with us. Yeah, and and USVs are are also subject to the coal regs. The the United States is a party to this convention, and and accordingly, all vessels that fly the U.S. flag are obligated by international and domestic law to comply with the coal regs, and this includes our U.S. warships, um, which otherwise would be often exempted from private international law conventions. Yeah, and the body respect responsible uh, for the development and updating of the coal regs is the United Nations Specialized Agency for Safety and Security Shipping, the International Maritime Organization, or the IMO, which is located in London, England. Uh, the Coast Guard is the lead U.S. agency at the IMO, with regular participation from the State Department and other agencies as necessary. As necessary. But Admiralty Council are accredited U.S. delegates to the IMO. That's right. And for the last two years, the IMO's Maritime Safety Committee has been conducting an assessment on whether and how to modify the shipping conventions to account for the development of autonomous technology. And we're talking about both remotely operated systems and truly autonomous systems. And Lieutenant Commander Brad Davis has participated as a member of the U.S. delegation and international working group uh, with over 100 other countries and non-government entities trying to identify the gaps in the coal regs and how they will apply to USVs and really laying a foundation to modify the coal regs to account for these self-navigating ships. Right now, there are multiple recommendations for modifying the coal regs to account for the development of autonomous technology, and it's just one of the interesting things uh, that Code 11 has been involved with. Yeah, Tom, what's next for USVs and Code 11? Well, so looking forward, Code 11 will continue to work with technical experts to translate the coal reg standards and requirements, many of which are benchmarked to, to human senses, and we're going to look how we can fundamentally change those um, in a language that doesn't necessarily apply to a human being and would apply to a USV, right? And an example of that uh, would be Rule 5 of the coal regs, which require every vessel to maintain a proper lookout by sight and hearing, right? And so how, here at Admiralty, how can we uh, help affect Admiralty law that's defi- that's defined this requirement and what standards would a remotely or autonomously navigated vehicle need to meet to be considered compliant? Yeah, no, and, and, you know, one interesting project that Code 11 Council was working on was uh, we did a survey of Admiralty U.S. collision law opinions. Right? So we went through uh, Lexis and, and pulled a bunch of opinions of recent collisions to help give uh, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, their Tactical Technology Office Engineers, some sense of what the law is as they were developing uh, their anti-submarine warfare continuous trail uh, unmanned vehicle. So in essence, it was a case law summary or distillation for software coders programming how their autonomous vehicles would behave. Although Admiralty precedent doesn't really indicate that a technological device can be a full substitute for a trained or vigilant human observer, if you're thinking about the lookout rule, rule five, this jurisprudence 
is on a collision course with the rapid computing advances affecting every aspect of human activities, including navigation on the seas. So a Colreg knowledgeable autonomous vehicle that can demonstrate maneuver competence in a dense traffic uh, to make that legally defensible under general maritime law toward principles, that's what Code 11 has been working on. It's been a great project. That's that. Sorry. Now to wrap up, let's let's touch on what a day like in Code Eleven is. You know, what are you doing as an action officer? And it really comes down to case management. So every officer here is going to have a caseload. You might have twenty to thirty claims cases in various states of disposition. You're also going to have a handful of litigation cases, right? You're going to have to decide how to split your time and set your priorities. You'll be attempting to close cases. Uh, either by denying claims or recommending settlements. You will provide maritime law advice to fleet SJAs and work with investigating officers to assist them in their informational collection efforts. You may be working with insurance agents trying to come to a settlement agreement. Uh, On the litigation side, you can guarantee that you'll be working with the Department of Justice at least weekly, if not daily. Uh, You'll also be interacting with OGC and JAGS throughout the Navy and at every level of the Navy. There's also plenty of travel opportunities for conferences such as the biannual Admiralty Law Review at Tulane University, and also opportunities to travel with the Department of Justice for depositions and also to do site visits. Yeah, and on that point about uh, Tulane, Tom, one last plug. So Tulane's a postgraduate opportunity for an LLM in international law with an admiralty certificate. Um, And it's one of the U.S. premier admiralty law schools. So this is a great chance for someone who's interested in PG school and a great location if you've never been to New Orleans. That will earn, You'll earn your national security law P code for those SJAs out there, JAGs out there, with a sharp focus on admiralty and maritime law. So this is a practice area that's really growing and expanding, and we've seen that over the past few years in particular. Um, and in, with that in mind, uh, we recently created an additional qualification designation, or an AQD, for Admiralty Maritime Law. So now with gaining confidence in this field, you can augment your service record with an AQD and further, at the same time, further the Navy's mission and handling Admiralty matters. Yeah, in many ways, Admiralty practice is the ultimate operational law practice because we not only employ maritime law, but we're also immersed in the art of ship handling and shipboard systems. And ships are to the Navy what shipping law is to the Navy JAG Corps. You have been listening to JAG Talk, a podcast series featuring Navy JAG community experts. Visit jag.navy.mil for additional chapters of this podcast series. Thank you for tuning in.